Um, this podcast has been done by Tridip Surut, who works as a provost at SEPT University. While the figure of the worker has always been part of the political imagination and the agenda of political change, the idea of work itself and working with one's own hand has rarely been part of the political imagination of freedom movements anywhere in the world. This podcast seeks to understand this unique aspect of Gandhi's engagement with the material world. Uh, it is in and through working with hands that he sought to expand the notion of freedom, uh, engage with hierarchies and inequities within Indian society, and also create a new narrative about craft and about division of labor, especially the gender division of labor. This podcast seeks to understand how Gandhi sought to do that and what possible implications could, could it have for a new form of economy and a new form of political imagination. He was one of the most photographed persons of his times. We find photographs of him in many poses, many activities, but rarely did the man ever look into the eye of the camera or allow the camera to capture his eyes. In all these images, there are images of Gandhi at work. And the work is interpreted most broadly. You would see him in conversations in that iconic photograph with Sardar Patel and Jawaharlal Nehru, conversing, discussing the future of this country and of freedom itself. One would see him taking a walk, sometimes to Dandi, sometimes in Noakhali, sometimes to the gates of the prison. We would see him tending to the Sikh, examining germs of leprosy under a microscope raised on two very large books. We would see him on his desk writing and very often spinning. But, do, but rarely do we see him doing other forms of work. And that absence of other forms of work is something that we need to be alerted to. And what are these forms of works? And why are they important? Is a question that we need to ask. And what significance it has in the imagination that we have of Gandhi, but more particularly, the kind of imagination that Gandhi had and the relationship that he had with the world of material objects and the world of, of production. For example, we rarely see him working on leather. We rarely see him doing agriculture. We rarely see him doing carpentry. We rarely see him doing weaving. Now, each of these activities is something that he engaged with in a fundamental way. We know, for example, that he learned sandal making while he was in South Africa with 
Hermann Kallenberg at the Monastery of Marion Hill. And that was his chosen work while he was a prisoner. We also know that when he left South Africa, he gifted a pair of sandals to his opponent, the person who was his bitterest of critiques, General Smuts, uh, with a note that these were a pair of sandals that he had made while he was the prisoner of General Smuts. So he worked on leather, continued to do so when, when he returned to India. In fact, the Sabarmati ashram had a tannery. No visitor today to the ashram has a chance to see this tannery. But Gandhi's work with leather continued throughout his life. He was, to use a Greek term, the original Chamar Chap. Gandhi worked as a carpenter. Herman Kallenberg, his lifelong friend and a very close associate from South Africa days, was a renowned architect. In fact, even Johannesburg of today has many iconic buildings which were designed and made under the supervision of Herman Kallenberg. Gandhi and Kallenberg together set up the Tolstoy farm and many buildings of the Tolstoy farm were erected with their own labor. In fact, there are descriptions of Gandhi working alongside Herman Kallenberg fixing the roof of buildings in the Tolstoy farm. So Gandhi knew carpentry. He, he worked as a carpenter alongside Kallenberg. Gandhi was a machinist. Now, the image that we have of Gandhi is, at best, is of a Luddite. Many of us tend to think of himself, of him, as, as not having any fondness or even understanding of modern machinery. But Gandhi was a user of the most modern and advanced technology when it came to printing. Gandhi ran a newspaper all his life from 1904 onwards. But Gandhi knew how to run these machines, fix these machines, do the printing himself. Um, these were machines, these were machines which required daily maintenance and it was something that every member of the community at Phoenix and Tolstoy, including Gandhi, were expected to learn. Gandhi also did agriculture. In fact, both the communities in South Africa that he established, first at Phoenix and then later at Tolstoy, were primarily agricultural communities, uh, which required each member to tend to a three-acre piece of land at Phoenix and a much larger piece of land at Tolstoy. All needs of food, um, of vegetables and fruits and grains, was something that came to them through their own labor. So Gandhi thought of himself and knew agriculture. When he returned to India, he took up two other activities. One that he is famously associated with, 
which is spinning, and the other weaving. We have rarely seen an image of Gandhi weave. But for Gandhi's own self-image, his self-description, weaving and agriculture were very crucial. In fact, when this great trial in Ahmedabad took place in 1922, when Gandhi was to be tried for sedition, he had to give to the prisoner, prison officials, in a form what his occupation was. And Gandhi wrote that he was a weaver and a farmer. So Gandhi's self-image is that not that of a political leader, it's that of a worker, somebody who works with his hands. And it is that Gandhi and that engagement with materiality which is important. The world of materials is not something that we take seriously into our political discourse. It is seen as something which provides the base of political economy at best. But it is not something that a political leader or somebody who thinks about the realm of political is expected to engage with in any direct way. A political leader is rarely expected to work with her or his hands, transforming materials, giving new shapes, creating new designs. And Gandhi was somebody who paid great attention to forms of design. We know, for example, that at least two objects are associated with him in terms of design. First is the iconic Gandhi Patti chapels. These are the most basic minimalistic design of a cross Patti chapel that one could find. There is not an element that one can reduce from that chapel. And if one were to try and reduce it, it would become a dysfunctional thing. It is minimalism at its utmost. The other object that is associated with him is a spinning wheel that he fashioned himself. What passes off at what is called a peti charkha, a box charkha, which is foldable, which collapses into a box and which can be carried, is something that Gandhi designed himself. Um, it was designed for him, by him, while he was a prisoner at Yaravda. And therefore, it carries the name Yaravda Chakra. But Gandhi actually designed two objects, um, both great improvements on on their present design, um, both in terms of its function, its ability, and what it sought to achieve through that, these were very important objects. What you also get is Gandhi instituting the first ever design competition of modern India. We know that sometime in 1928, Gandhi announced a design competition, which was to be the first design competition for India, which was to design and manufacture a multi-spindle spinning wheel. We know, for example, we know that all spinning wheels world over had a single spindle. 
which meant it restricted productivity, it was a question of efficiency, it was a question of maximizing human labor. And Gandhi's design challenge, which was nationwide announced, carried a price in 1928 of 100,000 rupees. That's a lakh of rupees in 1928. Many entries came. One thing that you could be sure about Gandhi, that he was not about to give up the prize or give away the prize so easily. In fact, it was given after his death in 1956 to what we call the Amba Charkha, which is the charkha which, is, which at that point had six spindles and could be run uh, uh, through a foot paddle, almost like a sewing machine. So Gandhi's understanding, engagement with the world of materiality and objects and design was rather serious. We also know that Gandhi thought of himself as somebody who could design homes. Not only build them to somebody's design, but he liked to think of himself as somebody who could design homes. The two very large examples of the, of the kind of architecture that Gandhi practiced, favored, wished to advocate can be found one at Sabarmati Ashram and the other at Sevagram. The present-day Sabarmati Ashram does not give us a sense of the community that was planned. But if you were to take an aerial view or an aerial photograph of that community, of what exists of those buildings and dwellings, workshops, schools, community kitchens, that they are planned according to a grid. It's a 90 degree angle grid at which the entire Sabarmati Ashram uh, was conceived. Similarly, the house that he was built for him at, at Sevagram called Bapukuti, although had inputs from Miraben, was largely designed the way he wanted it, of with verandas, large windows. Both his homes, one at Sabarmati and the other at um, Sevagram, are conceived around the veranda. So Gandhi had a sense of space, like all of us do, but he was somebody who could actualize that conception of space. Now, all this is a prelim, a prelude to the point that we need to understand, is the role of materiality and material objects, engagement with that world, with the world of politics, the ways in which they intersect, the ways in which that material engagement allows for a different conception of society and therefore of the politics that that society would practice. This becomes very crucial for a society like India. Now, Indian society, as we know, is hierarchical. Is hierarchical in the sense that there is a notion of ritual purity and impurity according to which each social group is ordered, its in relationships with itself 
that is its self-perception of that group and its relationship with other groups is defined largely by its position on that hierarchy. And therefore, the French um, sociologist Louis Dumont called the Indian society homo hierarchicus. What we don't know is that there is also embedded in this is not only a ritual hierarchy, but a hierarchy of materials. Indian society is among the few societies in the world which have from time immemorial created a hierarchy of materials and our engagement with material world of what we produce, how we produce, through what materials we produce has determined our position in the social structure, our position in the economic order, our position therefore in terms of the political economy of life itself. The least favored or the most polluting is the dead body. Dead body of the animal and then the dead body of the human. All those who are engaged in disposal of the dead are treated as impure and continue to be so treated. That is one form of work that nobody in India aspires to do, even today. These were the first communities that we created and treated and continue to treat as lesser human beings, as outcasts, almost residing outside the pale of society. Thereafter are those, are those people who deal with waste, sanitation, both human and bovine. And then the materials themselves. We have a hierarchy from clay to wood to iron, to gold. Gold being the most prized and therefore purer among the objects and clay being much lesser in value. So the craftspersons who dealt with each of these materials, either hereditary or through a chosen occupation, came to be placed in a certain kind of hierarchy. You also have a situation where doing bodily work, either through agriculture or allied activities of animal husbandry, was also something that was looked down upon. And therefore, at every available opportunity, a community, when it became prosperous, a family, when it became prosperous, one thing that it wanted to shun was to shun bodily labor in every form. So while we thought of India as subsisting on craft, subsisting on bodily labor, agriculture and allied activities, both sociologically, economically and therefore politically, we castigated 
all those who worked with their hands. And therefore, the work that came to be prized most was where there is absolute absence of material, pure thought. So those who dealt only with the world of ideas, with thoughts, came to be recognized as people who had the highest respect, position, and therefore power, access to knowledge, and therefore access and entry into the modern world. Pure thought was the purest form because it required no engagement with materiality. So Gandhi enters this world of materiality with a very clear understanding that he is intervening into both the sociology of production, the political economy of production and distribution, and also in the symbolic economy around production, around materials. So that's the first part. The second part, something that we know today rather well uh, and recognize, is that almost all activities are gendered. That there is a division between male labor and female labor that takes place. Spinning would be done by women and weaving would be done by men in most communities, except in certain matrilineal communities where women also wove. Nursing, caring for the ill, was always seen as the work of women or feminine work, if not necessarily work of women. Cooking and domestic labor was also seen as work of women. Now, if you really look at the forms of work with, with which Gandhi sought to identify himself, and the most important being spinning, there is the first image that comes to our mind when we speak of spinning or of Gandhi is invariably that of him at the spinning wheel. Now, what Gandhi does is that he takes up that part of work that had always and traditionally been identified as that which belonged to the realm of the woman's labor. In fact, it was a woman, Ganga Ben Vaidya, who gave Gandhi his first spinning wheel. Gandhi really had not seen a spinning wheel before he came to India. The other form of work that we associate, the other practice of women that we, we associate is fasting. Traditionally, all forms of religious and cultural observances were the burden of women. Women fasted and men feasted on the food that women had prepared. The other form of activity, of, of political activity, of political protest, of political action, and also of self-practice, is something that Gandhi adopts 
which lay squarely within the traditional domain of women's work or women's observance in this instance, that of fasting. So two activities, two images that we associate with Gandhi most, one of spinning, the other of fasting, both traditionally lay within the domain of women's work. In fact, for the early period of its history, Satyagra of what was then called passive resistance came to be identified with the kind of protest that the nascent women's movement in Europe would do. It came to be identified with the suffragette movement, largely because of its insistence upon non-violence, but also upon forms of protest and of action which were seen to belong to the domain of the feminine. So Gandhi is doing two things by his interventions. One, that he is begun to privilege bodily labor. The privileging of bodily labor in Indian politics continues to be the greatest contribution of Gandhi. In fact, in times to come, it is this contribution which would be valued much more than the contribution that Gandhi made to the struggle for freedom in India. Because what Gandhi wanted to do through this act of engagement with the material world was to begin to challenge, create grounds from which we could begin to dismantle the hierarchy associated with materials, hierarchy associated with human labor. The other form, other intervention that it seeks to do is to invert gendered notion of labor. Now these two are perhaps the most fundamental of interventions that Gandhi made in the world of materiality and in the world of objects. But he goes beyond that. He is also somebody who thinks that every problem needs to be resolved both at the level of micro but also at the macro level. That a solution is good only if a solution is not a particular solution but it's something that can be scaled up. Both in case of weaving and spinning, we know that Gandhi created large organizations called the All India Weavers Association and All India Spinners Association by which what was seen as a symbolic intervention could be turned into a livelihood option. And that's really the fascinating part about Gandhi. Gandhi as the organizer, Gandhi as somebody who begins to think of how to think at scale. Because every intervention, however symbolic, needs to be made at a scale in order for it to be turned from pure semiotic act, of, from a symbolic act into an intervention that could impact life and livelihood. So Gandhi is 
somebody who thinks not only of material engagement as symbolic engagement, as something that he ought to do or a few ought to do, but as something that could be turned into a viable political economy with its own basis of production, its own relationships of production, of distribution, of ownership of means of production. The other thing that Gandhi gives us is a notion which is as ought to be a subject of a separate conversation but is to think of how does this economy become permanent. Now Gandhi and, and a very gifted associate of his, an economist, a man called Joseph Cornelius Kumarappa, thought about ecology in ways in which we've just begun to think. In fact, those two were India's and therefore among the world's earliest ecological thinkers. They came up with this term called the economy of permanence. In fact, Kumarappa has a very beautiful small tract, almost a pamphlet-like thing um, um, called the economy of permanence. But what Gandhi wanted to do was to embed the practice of production, of distribution and consumption of what we produced, either through our body or through using human labor and combining it with machines, what we call capitalist mode of production, in a way that that economy was permanent, was sustainable, in a way that it did not steal from the future. The problem of ecology is that it steals resources, possibilities, life itself from generations to come. Gandhi is a deeply ecological thinker while doing material productions, while thinking of distribution systems, while thinking of design interventions. So these two aspects of Gandhi, one, his engagement with the world of materiality, his understanding of the hierarchies of materials, his understanding of gender divisions, his capacity to think at scale and his insistence that when we think of a solution, we must think of a solution that is not of the present, not only of today, but something that can be scaled into the future, into a system of production and distribution that could be almost permanent, what we call today sustainable, what he liked to call an economy of permanence. That's the Gandhi that we need to cherish. That's the Gandhi that we need to engage with. That's the Gandhi that we need to bring to the fore. Thank you.